0: Hello and welcome to the Plato's Academy Center podcast, where we feature modern-day academics, authors, and influencers that promote philosophy as a way of life. Be sure to check out our events page at platosacademy.eventbrite.com to stay up to date on our latest virtual conferences. i really be talking about themes that intersect with my work on philosophy as a way of life, but also the book that I've written on, I think, a period of intellectual history, which I think has been sorely misunderstood um, to our detriment and not in ways unrelated to, I think, this issue of civility and incivility that we're facing, namely the period of the European Enlightenment. Um, Spencer mentioned the friend-enemy distinction, and I'll start with that because that's, that's where I worry where, where we are. This comes, as many of you will know, from the authoritarian-cum-Nazi legal theorist, Carl Schmitt. Schmitt brutally draws out the consequences of conceiving politics in terms solely of friends versus enemies. Politics is a continuation of war by other means. At the same time, he argues, no principle can justify any political action, including going to actual physical war, only the concrete decisions of groups or their leaders whose task it is to define friend and enemy and then do what is necessary uh, to protect the friends against the foes. So I'm certainly not one of the academics that since the 1990s have sought to rehabilitate Schmidt who was Hermann Goring's Prussian state councillor from 33 to 45, played a leading role in sanctioning the Knight of Long Knives, the Nuremberg race laws, and then legitimating Nazi imperialism in Europe. But I think that Schmitt's understanding of what he calls the political friends and enemies describes what politics can become and what it seems sometimes to be becoming. But consider the consequences if we make politics war. In war, it is wise to lie and deceive the enemy. In war, it is good for leaders to misrepresent the enemy to their own supporters, us, to attribute bad things to them, even if we know they haven't done them or can't be sure. It's clever to exaggerate their wrongs to stir up outrage outrage amongst our base. It's cunning to minimise other things that the enemy does which might be inoffensive or even admirable. In war, it is canny also to ignore whether what they say has any validity, especially when it does. In war, on the other hand, it is clever to minimise any bad things that we have done, accepted, instituted or might be planning. It's savvy to conceal these things for as long as possible or else to rationalise them by blaming all our problems on our enemies. We had no choice. They started it. In war, it is expedient for leaders to whip up their followers' strongest, least rationally tameable emotions, fear, anger, and hatred, in order to mobilize the population and justify all necessary measures. The first casualty of war, people will know it has been said, is truth the first casualty of inferring from the fact that politics can be conducted as a winner-take-all war, that it always should be conducted this way, I believe has to be incivility between partisans of different political positions. The longer we consent as societies to understanding politics as war or culture war, and it rolls off the tongue after 40 years, the more the fabric of civility must fray. The point of war, after all, is to win by destroying one's foes, not to engage in a shared search for anything higher or larger. So my talk is about what stoicism can do about uh, this issue of incivility in the age of social media. Stoicism, including through Donald's work, has become a global phenomenon because of the Internet. In the same decades as we've been talking about, it's become more and more evident that there's a flip side in terms of what social media can afford us. The media as we presently have it is organised in such a way as to corral users, as people know, into groups of friends whose news feeds increasingly screen out the stories, concerns and perspectives of others. We've also become more and more aware in the last decade of how the algorithms exploit the worst in human psychology. Fusion, as we've been talking about in particular lust, fear and anger, activating affects, in order to keep our eyes and attention on their platforms and the advertising that supports it. At the same time, again, even as access to, I think, the professional and managerial classes has been, thankfully, largely opened up to women and members of minorities, our societies are becoming more and more economically divided. There are widening gulfs between those with access to the best schools and university degrees and those without that access, between city and country, between the educational and vocational opportunities available to different groups, even between generations as increasingly large numbers of the young around the world are priced out of property markets or saddled with debts, the scale of which their parents and grandparents never had to bear. It's a big issue in Australia, particularly in the capital cities. To understand why there is so much anger in our communities, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of those who feel defeated, excluded, cheated or at risk. If the system is experienced by someone as being rigged, what is there for them to lose? And what reason have they to admire their leaders, no matter how slick the PR? If the the response of competing elites is to either say, suck it up, it's always been like that, don't blame anyone but yourselves, or else you deserve it because of the demographic you were born into, then the wells of anger and hatred will only continue to rise. It's significant, I think, that the two major episodes of Stoics getting involved in ancient politics involved support for radical reforms to end chronic indebtedness, redistribute land, and vastly diminish social inequality. The first was the support of the Stoics' Ferris pupil of Zeno and Cleanthes for King Cleomenes II, King Cleomenes II's radical land reforms in Sparta in the late 3rd century BCE. The second was the support of the Stoic Blossius and the Civilus for the Gracchian land reforms in 1st century BCE Rome. It's also worth remembering today as efforts are being made to suggest that supporting greater greater equality is not a basic measure to protect elementary social cohesion, but somehow effeminate a weak or a rationalisation of envy or resentment that the Stoics believed in the natural equality of all peoples. The Stoics leaders were themselves mostly near Eastern immigrants in Athens. In remarkable contrast to other philosophical schools, Zeno defined the city, polis from whence our politics, in such a way as to include any citizen or non-citizen who resided in the place. So, I'm drawing here heavily on Andrew Erskine's excellent book on um, the politics of the Hellenistic Stoics. All of this, while at the same time, of course, the Stoics do defend a philosophy which extols courage as a virtue and which furnishes us as individuals with powerful resources of resilience and self-reliance when the chips are down. Strength, however, I believe the Stoics also thought is needed to protect the weak, and virtue is not gendered any more than the Greek word arete has masculine endings. That much by way of uh, comment on certain uptakes of Stoicism today. The Stoic ethics asks us to begin where we are, with what we can control none of us by ourselves can heal all the wounds and divisions of our societies or the global community we can however each try to exemplify the changes we wish to see around us we can also by understanding the preconditions for politics as lurching into incivility if we can choose not to fan the flames to just say to either side in the culture wars stop it or be nice is however i'm afraid unlikely to do much good to tell an angry person that they should just stop being angry without addressing the reasons why they're angry generally doesn't work we need instead to challenge in ourselves and when we can in others the Schmidian vision i believe of those we dis- disagree with whether liberals or conservatives as enemies who deserve whatever they get how can stoicism help with this more achievable task Consider this nugget from Epictetus's manual, section 26. What the will of nature is may be learned from a consideration of the points in which we do not differ from one another. For example, when some other person's slave boy breaks his drinking cup, you're instantly ready to say, oh, that's just one of the things which happen. Apply now the same principle to the matters of greater importance. Some other person's child or wife has died. Everyone would say, such is the fate of man. Yet when a man's own child dies, immediately the cry is, Alas, woe is me. What Epictetus is drawing attention to here here, is how, strangely, we view ourselves differently from others. When bad things happen to them, we can often speak philosophically, comforting them, contextualising their specific fate in light of a larger, even cosmic vision. Yet when we ourselves feel threatened, we forget all about this and act as if we are a cosmic exception. What we should do, Epictetus advises, is therefore to remember how we feel when we hear of the same misfortune befalling others and practise judging ourselves by the same standard when like misfortunes befall us. A good deal of politics, it seems to me, involves judgments about other people we've never met in situations we've never encountered and involves generalisations which couldn't be supported if we had the time and resources, which almost none of us do, to go check for ourselves. Prompted by politicised media, fed by our feeds, the way we tend to imagine the other en masse is the mirror opposite of the kinds of cases Epictetus depicts. When a friend misses the promotion, we can be wise, as against when it happens to us, then it's bad. But when it comes to politics, we understand very well the hard work that we do, The virtues we have the values we hold the sacrifices we make and the anxieties we face we are the good ones when it comes to the other though we're somehow completely unphilosophical ready to believe that unlike us they've got it easy they don't work hard they don't sacrifice love strive face legitimate problems have morality compassion humanity the virtues etc on mass so they've got it coming en masse. One example, in Australia, when there is a natural disaster, the news, media, the news media competes to describe Aussie virtues. These virtues involve assisting those in need and, if need be, risking life and limb to save the defenceless, as well as giving charitably. Yet taking just one step backward, it doesn't take too much to realise that actually these Aussie virtues look very much like Turkish virtues, Syrian virtues, Ukrainian virtues, even Russian virtues, Japanese virtues, Peruvian virtues, Bolivian virtues, and so on, when things are bad. Also, truth be told, not every Aussie actualises these virtues, just as not every Brazilian, Canadian, Belgian, etc. will either, because humans are humans, and virtue and vice know no particular nation. To counter the all too human tendency to asymmetrically judge ourselves and others, the leading enlightenment philosophers of the 18th century, Montesquieu, Voltaire, Diderot, centrally, aligned, or I believe, adapted the Stoic exercise of looking at ourselves as if we were another, as modeled in Epictetus's manual, as we've just seen. But they do it in a more political way that I think is especially relevant to our considerations here. And this is really the central argument of my my book, The Other Enlightenment. Like us today, these philosophers were concerned with how to rebuild civility in their case, in a world in which the religious certainties underlying, underlying European societies had been undermined or had themselves become the cause of bloody civil war. The principal virtue the philosophes promoted was that of toleration, a new virtue responding to a recognition that whilst people were unlikely to ever wholly agree on matters of religion and theology, all peoples can agree on the preconditions for civil moral life. What is toleration? Voltaire answers, it is the appurtenance of humanity. We're all full of weakness and errors. Let us mutually pardon each other our follies. This is the first law of nature. So note the similarity with Epictetus, that the will of nature may be learned from a consideration of the points in which we don't differ from one another. But also note that to pardon the other, each party needs to be able to recognise that they are not perfect, faultless, and the pinnacle of human wisdom and achievement. So each has no absolute right to pass absolute judgement of life, death or domination and damnation on others. It is to foster the ability of readers, I believe, to more humbly and accurately assess themselves, that so many of the great literary texts, sadly neglected of the Enlightenment figures, featuring encounters between peoples from different cultural or, in some cases, even cosmic worlds. I believe these texts are little stagings of the Stoic exercises of otherizing ourselves or self estrangement, to assist readers in enlarging their perspectives. In Montesquieu's Persian letters, for example, two Persians come to Louis XIV's Paris. In their eyes, Catholic transubstantiation, the idea that the host bread in the communion is the body of Christ, looks like basic superstition. Catholics' eating of the host bread during communion is cannibalism. The capacity of the king to revalue the entire French currency by fiat is a prize example of sorcery. The Trinitarian idea that one God could also be three, etc. seems very strange. All of these European beliefs and customs seem every bit as absolutely irrational to the Persian visitors as Muslim cu- customs or Islamic customs would have appeared to 18th century French Catholics. The Persian letters readers are thereby prompted to re-look at what they had themselves always taken for granted as nearly strange, contestable, no longer inevitable, and perhaps also transformable, critiquable, and so on. In Diderot's Letters on the Blind, comparably, comparably, the narrator goes to visit a man born blind, curious as to how this presumably inferior other can live at all. By dialogue with this man, however, he soon learns that the blind man is intelligent, tidy, and very skilled at crafts like needlework. He is much more haptically and audially sensitive than the sighted. He has a better sense of duration, comparative weights and atmospheric changes. And he has a very exacting sense of space. So accurate, in fact, that in his youth, he accurately cast a stone at a bully. The man born blind has a subtle appreciation of music, a strong memory for sounds, and his heightened sense of touch gives him certain advantages in the act of love. La- then that's not uh, nothing for Diderot. Um, last but not least, his blindness means that like a veritable ancient Stoic sage, he is in no way overawed by the waistcoats, plush suits and purple plumage of civil and religious authorities. By the end of Diderot's extraordinary performance in Letter on the Blind, people who are born blind are being presented by Diderot as models of enlightenment, while most of we sighted, immured in our unquestioned prejudices, are being positioned as truly blind. The deepest purpose of this exercise of self-othering, I believe, is exactly the message Epictetus wants to give us in the Manual 26, but as it were, in reverse. Before we judge others, remember we exhibit the same vices we condemn in them, or else others equally grave or ingracious, which others would readily be able to discern in us. It is a matter of cultivating what Emmanuel can't, Another great German Enlightenment thinker and admirer of the Stoics calls the maxim of enlarged thinking. Apologies for Kant's prose. This maxim says, um, asks us rather to detach oneself from the subjective personal conditions of our judgment, which cramp the minds of so many, and reflect upon our own judgment from a universal standpoint, which we can only determine by shifting our ground to the standpoint of others. I'm about to finish this enlightening post stoic exercise, shifting our ground to the standpoint of others isn't easy. Recurrent criticisms of toleration as being mere weakness, the inability to make up our minds and stand for anything, I believe are polemical misunderstandings. Intolerance and the the assumption that we are superior have always been far easier and are far more commonplace in human history. If we are to live peaceably and engage civilly with our neighbours in complex plural societies, though, my proposal is that we need to foster, amongst other things, but centrally, this stoic enlightened practice of seeing ourselves and the issues we are disputing through others' eyes. Only in this way will we learn, to echo Socrates, to be strict on ourselves and civil to others, rather than the other way around. To repeat, this does not mean giving in on important issues, but it does mean committing to seeing the other as not a crazed, malign enemy who needs to be shut down or cancelled. To the extent that we can see ourselves and the issues through their eyes, our capacity to engage civilly with them can be increased. We are also an other for them, after all. And this post-Stoic exercise does therefore mean respecting those we disagree with as rational agents who, like everybody else, as Socrates reminds us, is aiming to do what they think is best, even though we believe that their reasons are importantly mistaken or uncompelling. So I'll finish with a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Teach them better and make it appear better to them, but don't you be angry with them. Thank you so much. <laughs>